Assalamu alaikum. Let's give it up one more time for Ru'a and her wonderful work, and we appreciate you, and I'm honored to be on the stage with all of you. I'm gonna give some of the straddlers a little time uh, to come in, so I saw some folks that I know who are still on the registration line. I wanted to actually share a quick story with you about the a census. Um, in 2010, which was the last time we did the census, I was also part of the same coalition that was pushing for there to be Amina category, which is Middle East, North Africa. And again, that was a negotiation that we had with the US Census Bureau. In fact, just so you understand the political moment we're living in, after, uh, in 2010, I remember the US Census Bureau came to me when I was the executive director at the Arab American Association of New York and knew that I had a lot of relationships around the country. They said to me, listen, we need the Arab American community to engage in census. And oftentimes in some of these communities, the census numbers are really low. And of course, it's for many reasons. We mistrust the government. We already know we're on all the FBI watch list. Why should we just give the government information voluntarily? Those were some of the excuses and reasons why people didn't want to fill out the census. They didn't understand why the census, all kinds of things. So I said to the US Census Bureau, okay, if you want me to help you get our community involved in the census, you're gonna just have to trust me on this one. You're just gonna have to let me do it the way that I wanna do it. They didn't really understand what that meant. So they said, okay, so they sponsored some organizations around the country, Arab American organizations. And so we started a national campaign. There's actually a PSA that might be still on YouTube from like 10 years ago. And my campaign and with a couple of friends of mine from the, the network of Arab American professionals, we started a national campaign called Check it right, you ain't white. That's how you're gonna remember what Ru'a said. The campaign was called Check it right, you ain't white. Oftentimes, we as Arab Americans, and of course there are people in this room who may be of other, um, you know, other Muslims who are from Africa or South Asia, but specifically for Arab Americans, we are counted as white. So anybody from North Africa or any part of the Middle East, and you know, and, 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 and people from the Gulf, for example, like for example, if you're from Yemen, you are not white. That doesn't even make logical sense for you to be called white. If you're from Egypt, I know Egyptian Americans who are African, that look, I have the features of our African American sisters and brothers. They are from the African continent. People from Morocco and Tunisia. So the fact that these people are being put all in one box and saying that we are all white and share the same characteristics of, as people from Eastern Europe doesn't make any logical sense. And the reason why that's important to understand around the census is that in America, they say the majority of people in America are what? Well, guess what? Arab Americans help make that statistics a fact. So what I hope that you do this time around is that you do engage in filling out the census form because two reasons. Number one, the communities that you come from will get resources from Congress and appropriations from funding based on the number of people who fill out the census. So you can't complain when they shut a hospital down or a clinic in your community. You can't complain and say, why don't we have more public education funding in this district? You can't complain when your streets need more support, infrastructure and lights and all these things that sometimes we don't even think about. The way that you get those resources allocated to your community is by the number of people in your community. How does the government know how many people live in your district? By you filling out the census form. So that's the first reason, making sure that your district gets the appropriate funding that you deserve 
because you are also all taxpayers. So filling out the census, they actually put a number on each individual. And different, I think districts got different numbers allocated to them. So some district, it may be that each person equals $2,000, for example. So imagine if you know 50,000 people or 100,000 people in the district don't do the census form. Well, guess what? That's less funding for that district because those people didn't want to fill out the census form. Number two, we should be counted. We deserve to be counted. So while we may look at the census form and not feel like we're represented, we could be represented by saying that we are not white, we are other, and putting in our nationalities. And again, as Sister Ro'a said, you could do whatever you want. You want to put Arab American, put Arab American. You want to be Yemeni, you want to be Lebanese, you want to be Syrian, you want to be whatever country your parents are from or you were born in, feel free to put that in there. But the point here is that we should be filling out the census form to get those resources allocated and make it really hard for the government by putting other, because other requires the government to do a lot more work. One last thing about the census that I will say is that in 2015, after we did the 2010 campaign, the government was like, okay, people, all right, you made us do too much work in 2010. We're gonna test the category. And the category is gonna be called MENA, Middle East, North Africa, which again is a government term given to us. It was a negotiation. Middle East, North Africa represents us more than white. So we said, okay. So in 2015, the US government tested that category. They did some sample surveys around the country. Guess what happened? It successfully tested. People actually saw Middle East, North Africa and it spoke to them and they were filling it out in that way. Then 2017 came around and 2018 came around and the US government and US Census Bureau under the Trump administration was preparing themselves for the 2020 census. Guess what Trump did? He polled it. So now when you see the 2020, and you could look this up, there's mainstream articles about the MENA category being polled by this administration. The Trump administration said absolutely not because they know that if we as a community, Iranians also would have been included, the Turks would have also been uh, included and other people would have decided to use that category, the numbers of folks who are racially white would have went down. That doesn't help this administration. So Donald Trump pulled the MENA category. So in the 2020 census, you are not going to see a MENA category. And I want you to know why. This administration has been doing a lot of things to our community that our community has sat back silently, not understanding the ramifications of what this administration is doing to our communities. So anyway, that was my little census thing. I was waiting for my friends to come who were on the registration line, and now some of them are here, so I'm gonna start. So I'm gonna start over. Salam alaikum. I am, again, deeply honored and humbled to be here at Mass Ikna. What a beautiful convention. I'm so, like, blessed towards the end of the year to get to close out my year with all of you and the 25,000 other people who are here. It's actually a beautiful thing, and I'm grateful that you all chose to be here today. And I think the reason why coming here at the end of the year is important to me is because it actually gives me the fuel for the year to come. And let me tell you, sisters and brothers, 2020 is the year. I don't know how 2020 is going to turn out, but I'm telling you right now, it is our year. We either figure out how to leverage it and make it our year, or we're going to lose 
a lot as a community if we don't figure out how to live, organize, stand up, and be unapologetically Muslim in 2020. I really don't know. What I could tell you is I know what I'm going to do in 2020. And I hope that when I tell you how I'm going to show up and why I show up the way that I do, I hope that you leave here encouraged, motivated, inspired, and also unapologetic about who you are. Because I can't be in every Muslim community. I can't be friends with everybody. I can't be in conversation and dialogue with all of you. So I hope that these spaces, when we get to come together, that we're able to come out with something for all of us. This particular session is about what it means to be visible, this idea of hiding uh, who we are as Muslims. And in, in fact, that's something that's happening across the country. It's an actual epidemic in the Muslim American community. And I don't judge anybody. That's the difference between me and many other scholars and imams and other, I don't judge nobody in the Muslim community because I don't live people's lives. I don't understand everybody's experiences. So I know, for example, going across the country, I've met a lot of sisters who have made the decision to take off their hijabs. And it's because they live in places like rural Arkansas or Kansas City, or they live in places where they don't have a support or a network like many of us do living in a place like Chicago, or living in Brooklyn, New York, or living in Patterson, New Jersey, or living in Arlington, Virginia, or Falls Church, Virginia, or living in communities like in Dallas, Texas, or in Houston, Texas, where we're able to come and be in gatherings together, and our sisters are able to see other sisters and have the kind of courage that they need to stay and be who they are. So I don't judge our sisters. I know oftentimes parents in particular are also culprits in this. When they send their kids to universities, the first thing they tell their kids when they get to universities, look, I send you to school to get a degree. I don't send you to school to organize. I didn't tell you to be part of no Muslim Student Association. You better not tell me you're organizing with the Students for Justice in Palestine because that's a line I got to draw. The kids tell me that. The kids tell me that. Their parents are telling them to go to university, put their heads down, not make any trouble, learn, study, get a degree, and leave university. That's what the parents are telling their kids. Now think about that for a second. What kind of message do you send to your child when you tell your child, I'm sending you to school to put your head down and put your head in the books and study? No need for you to stand up and defend your dean on a college campus. No need for you to be part of groups educating other college university students about Islam and the beauty of our faith. No one sent you to school to stand up and defend the people of Palestine, the people of Kashmir, the Indians, Muslims in India, stand up for the people of Yemen or the people of Sudan or what's happening in Somalia or what's happening to Muslims all over the world, the Uyghurs, Muslims. I don't send you to school to do that. What kind of message do our parents send our kids? In fact, when my kids go to school, the first question I ask is, what student club are you going to be a part of? What's your issue? My daughter, who's in college, doesn't wear hijab. And maybe, inshallah, one day she will, but I'm not going to force her to do it. So I said to her, how will people know that you're a Muslim? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, you don't wear hijab, and if people saw you, they wouldn't know you were a Muslim, and her name is Sabrine. And in English, you know, people are American, um, you know, non-Muslim Americans will say Sabrine, Sabrina, whatever they want to call her. Her name is Sabrine. I named her after, in 2000, I named her Sabrine al Shaib Palestine. And, but people don't know that. 
And she said, I don't understand what you're asking me. She said, I'm very proud to be Muslim. Well, nobody knows that. I said, when you walk into your university, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to go find a Muslim student association. And you're going to join it. And you're going to support them. And you're going to find two, three hours a month to give to that Muslim student association so that other students see that you are part of a group on campus that is affiliated with the Muslim American community. That's what I told my daughter the first day she went to university. I didn't say, I sent you to school to put your head in the books. Don't tell anyone you're Muslim. Don't make trouble. If you hear someone saying anything anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, anti-Palestinian, you don't worry about it. Just let them say what No, absolutely not. And so I hope parents of the room find the courage to understand that when you tell your kids, even when you're saying it to them, and I know why you say these things, you say it from a place of love. You say it because you want your kids to be safe, because you know this world is not safe for our children. But in a time like this, it is our responsibility as parents to make our kids so unapologetic about who they are. When I watch my kids walk out of the house, you know what I tell them and they say, I'm so annoying. You know what I say? I say, back straight, head held high. Every time I see my kids slouching a little bit, even I do that to myself when I notice that I'm slouching, I say back straight. Because our kids have everything to be proud of, sisters and brothers. And it requires us as parents to ensure that our kids feel proud every single day to be Muslim in these United States of America. You know, my visibility, I don't hide. And in fact, my New Year resolution in 2020 is I'm going to be even more extra Palestinian and extra Muslim, if there's ever such a thing. And, and I'd say to Muslims all the time, you know, why are, aren't we more proud to be Muslim? What are we afraid of? What are you afraid of? Here we are at Muslim American Society Convention with all your fellow Muslim sisters and brothers, we're together in community. You'll hear many lectures here from our scholars. And one of the things we all share as Muslims is that we only fear Allah. So if you only fear Allah, what else are you afraid of? There's nothing to be afraid of, sisters and brothers. Our young people are looking for our courage. And I'm not talking about you young people, I'm talking about the younger generation. I'm talking about the kids in the youth program, the eight-year-olds, the 10-year-olds. They're looking for courage from our community. Oftentimes, people see me and they say, oh, mashallah, Sister Linda, she's an activist. Okay, fine. I'm an activist. I'm an organizer. I'll take that. No problem. But what I really want you to know about me is there is nothing that I do outside of who I am as a Muslim. You know why I'm an activist? Because my best example in my beloved deen is our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him. In modern times, you would call our beloved Prophet Muhammad a human rights activist. When you studied the seerah, or you learned about stories of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, where did you find him? Amongst the poor, amongst the most marginalized people, amongst the widows and the elders, our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, he was never looking to be amongst those that were the most powerful or looking to have access to the most powerful people like many of our Muslim leaders do today. You will find refugees suffering in our community, widows in our community suffering, women who are divorced, 
whose husbands left them with four or five children, people in utter poverty in our community. And then you'll find some of our leaders at a member of Congress's office taking a picture or doing a fundraiser for a member of Congress that never did anything for our community, just so they can have some access to power. Your credibility and integrity as a Muslim is what you do to the most marginalized in our community. It's not what you do for the most powerful people in the societies in which we live. That is what a true Muslim is, and that is what a true Muslim leader is. If your leader is preaching one thing and doing nothing of what they preach, that is not a Muslim leader. That's why there is nothing that I will ever tell the Muslim American community to do that I myself have not done. That's just not going to happen. Because I'm not better than all of you. When I tell you to register and vote, guess what? I'm registered and I vote too. If I'm asking you to join me at the border to support children who've been stripped from their mothers at the US border, guess what? Before I tell you to go, I've been there many times already. When I tell you to show up for an unarmed black man or woman who've been killed at the hands of police, guess what? I've been there, done that, and I will continue to do that. And when I ask you to do something, it's because I've already done it. And I know that my beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, were alive today, he would be at the front lines of every movement in this country. Because that is the kind of man that he was. Our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, was an environmental justice activist. Think about it. He taught us that Allah created the trees, the oceans, the lakes, that Allah blessed us with this earth. So we as Muslims are responsible to take care of the earth and the blessings that Allah has given us. So when you hear young people in our community talking about climate change and talking about environmental justice and getting involved in this movement, you shouldn't say that's not a Muslim issue. You should be encouraging our young people to be part of the environmental justice movement. Because sisters and brothers, we can fight for justice every day, all day, and maybe one day, inshallah, we will all get justice. But if there's no planet for us to live on, then the justice is moot. There's no point. Our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, also was a racial justice activist. I did not need a hashtag six years ago that said Black Lives Matter for me as a Muslim to know and believe that black lives always mattered in my beloved deen. That my beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, said you are not to judge people by the color of their skin, you are to judge them by their piety and by their good deeds. That is our faith, my sisters and brothers. We are an anti-racist religion. That's why I tell you we have everything to be proud of as Muslims. When I think about women's rights, this is a bad word in the Muslim community for some reason. Everybody always gets worked up. The minute they hear a Muslim sister say feminism, everyone's like, Allah. The sisters are going down the wrong path. Sister Linda's taking them down the wrong path. And I say this to the sisters and the brothers. I didn't need Western feminists in America or Western feminists to teach me about my worth as a Muslim woman. My beloved deen teaches me about my worth. So our deen is inherently a feminist religion. Our value as women is clear in the seerah, it is clear in ayat and the Quran. It is very clear to me that as a Muslim woman, I am to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect that Allah intended for me to be treated with. That is your deen. That isn't because I picked up some book written by some feminist 40 years ago or 20 years ago. It's not because I was an organizer in the Women's March. I went to the Women's March because I was a Muslim. And I wanted to ensure that every woman in America and everyone around the world saw a Muslim woman in hijab who is proud of her faith and proud of her religion and proud of my holy book and proud of my beloved prophets and proud of my history to stand up on the stage and say, I too am a woman that stands up for women's rights because that is what my deen tells me to do.
So don't let anybody tell you that standing up for women's rights is something you learned because you were born in America because you came to America. That is our beloved Dean. Now let's make a distinction now because everyone's looking at me, okay. There's a difference between Islam, our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, his wives, and Muslims today. Muslim dictatorships do not represent Islam or our beloved deen. There are some Muslim scholars, some, small number, but some who also don't represent our deen in its entirety. We uh, come from a faith that loves women. We learn that heaven lays at the feet of, heaven lays at the feet of, they didn't say the father, they said the mother. They said two educated daughters, two righteous educated daughters take the father where? Inshallah, you also have some righteous sons too, but they didn't say two righteous sons. They said two righteous educated daughters send you to heaven. These are not, these are just metaphors for giving you examples of how valuable women are and how valuable our daughters are in our beloved deen. And that's how proud, especially for the sisters, I want you to walk out here with your back real straight and your head held high because your deen loves you, Allah loves you, and Allah wants you to be educated. Allah wants you to feel worthy every single day. Oftentimes, I hear people say things like, Islam is a religion of peace. I agree. I agree with that. But the other part of it is more important. While Islam truly is a religion of peace, Islam is also a religion of justice. You cannot have peace without justice. Imagine telling the Uyghur Muslims, peace, or telling the people of Syria, peace, or telling the people of Yemen, peace. Those people deserve justice. In Palestine, we need justice before there is peace. And Islam is rooted in this concept of justice. And what's beautiful about our beloved Dean is that nowhere in our beloved Dean does, does justice mean just us. I don't say justice from just the Muslims. There, there, that doesn't exist. Justice is for all people who are oppressed, all people who are hurt and marginalized. Allah doesn't like to see people suffer. Imagine you walking down the street and you see in places like Los Angeles and New York, imagine you're walking down the street and you see homeless people. People put out because there's no affordable housing, people losing their jobs. Imagine you walking over them and saying, can't do nothing for those folks because they're not Muslims. Well, first of all, how did you even know that they're Muslim or not? That's the first question. Imagine you hearing that someone in your community was just killed in a hate crime. <clears throat> maybe they were Jews or maybe they were black, maybe they were undocumented. We don't, it could be for any reason. Imagine you as a Muslim saying, oh well, they're not Muslims. That's not our deen. That's why I'm so proud. Like when I walk out and I'm in the movement and I'm part of activist work and I go sit on coalition, I really am sitting there with such pride because I know my deen sends me here. I know that my faith tells me to stand up for the most marginalized people. And being in a space where I don't even have to say anything, I don't even have to open my mouth. When they see me, they know I'm a Muslim. 
and they see me sitting at a table to end police brutality or to demand that undocumented people in this country, many of whom are Muslims, deserve a pathway to citizenship, that they are our neighbors and they send their kids to school with our kids and these are people who are hardworking and came to this country for better opportunities, just like many of our families came. And so I say to people all the time that we're in a moment as a community where we really got to stop telling people about Muslims and Islam and we got to start showing people what it is. I don't like this whole stand on the street corner and give people pamphlets about Islam. How many times have someone come up to you on the street to tell you Jesus loves you? Which, by the way, I always say I love him too and they love it when I say that to them. And oftentimes, out of respect, I do take the pamphlet and I walk away with it. Many times you don't read that pamphlet. You took it because out of respect for the young woman or, or man or whoever it is, you know, wanting to show some sort of sisterhood and brotherhood and you know it's cold sometimes. They're standing in the train station or on the street corners and you feel bad and you're like, okay, let me take this pamphlet. Let me say thank you to them and just walk away. Oftentimes people don't read the things that they take on the streets. And I say to people all the time, how much more powerful it is as Muslims for us to show people what Islam is, right? to show people what we stand for, for who we are, show them our compassion and our mercy versus thinking that a piece of paper is supposed to inspire anyone. No one has ever been inspired by a piece of paper. They are inspired by other human beings. And so when I say to people, there's a, actually a quote from a famous poet named Maya Angelou, where she says, and I'm gonna paraphrase, she said, people will forget what you said they may not remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. And I wanna share this quick story with you that really brings this point to home and it really moves me every time I think about it. I actually posted about it on Facebook like two years ago and I put a photo up. I went with, um, I go to the other ICNA mass conference in Washington DC area. And every year ICNA Relief does a service project and they go out to the local community wherever the convention is and they do some service to a homeless population. And Washington DC has one of the biggest homeless population. Imagine that. The place, the center of all the power in America with the largest homeless population. And so we did a service project. We went to this local church that services the local homeless population. They actually use their parking lot to put tents up and sleeping bags for the homeless population to sleep. And many of the homeless population, as you know, are predominantly in that area African-American. And so what ICNA did is that they put together these bags, you know, with deodorant and socks and toothbrushes, toothpaste, all kinds of things, great things that people would need, you know, uh, power bars and things like that. And we took the young people at whoever wanted to volunteer at the, at the ICNA mass convention, and we took them down to this church which was only not too far from the convention. And then the kids, you know how they were, they were around and they gave the packages to all the different homeless people that were there. And it was beautiful and you know, we had already had this conversation with the young people about how even in times of charity, how you give people things with dignity and make them feel dignified. This is not a handout that you see the value and inherent dignity in these people. And they were very moved by us. We had a lot of conversations with them. And then after the service project was over, Imam Khalid Latif, who many of you know, is a dear brother and friend of mine in New York, he was with me. And so he said, let's all go to the park down the street and we're going to do dua together to close out the service day project. And of course we went 
and we got into this big circle and Imam Khalid was in the middle and he was making dua for all of us and for all the people that we were serving and for all the homeless people that were there and for all the homeless people all over the world and for all those who are brokenhearted and for all, you know, the usual du'as, right? It was so beautiful. And Imam Khalid does one of the most beautiful du'as. And if you've ever never been to any of his lectures or have listened to any of his du'as, please look them up online. All of a sudden, in the middle of the du'a, and mind you, I'm looking down and everyone's looking down. And for some reason, something told me to look up. And so I looked up. And right behind, right behind the circle that we made to do du'a, there was another circle. And the circle was of some of the homeless men who we, we had just served. And so after the dua, I walked up to them and I said, may peace and blessings be upon you, you know, and started talking, what's your name? And I said to one of the men that was standing, I said, are you Muslim? And he said, I was a Muslim 25 years ago. And that may have changed today. He literally, group of men holding out their hands, making dua with us so moved by the service, by the dignity of the group of people that came from our community to serve them. And so don't ever underestimate, sisters and brothers, your compassion and mercy to others versus you trying to lecture or debate somebody about why Islam is a great religion or why Islam is not a violent religion or why all these things that you're going to get into. That's not what's important. What's important is how you carry yourself every single day as a Muslim. I just want to remind everybody, because sometimes we are so engulfed in our lives, in our everyday, in our jobs, in our schools, in our, you know, taking care of the kids and all this th these things that we really forget to sometimes sit and reflect as a community. Have you ever come to Mass Ikna or any convention or even went to the masjid and you were sitting in the masjid and did you ever think to yourself and say, wow, somebody sacrificed for me to be here. Somebody along the way had to give up something for me to be here today at this mass convention. Somebody sacrificed to build this masjid. Somebody had to do something for me to be able to stand up and walk around the streets in the United States and say to people, I am unapologetically Muslim. Did you ever think about who sacrificed for you? Your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your ancestors that came here before? A lot of times as Muslim Americans, those of us who are immigrants or children of immigrants or grandchildren of immigrants, we actually tell the story of Islam based on our own story. So we say to people like, oh, my, pa you know, my Pakistani grandfather came here to go to medical school in the 1950s, or my Palestinian grandfather came here after the 1967 war, or my Lebanese grandfather came here after the Civil War, and everybody got a story. And they think that their family showed up or that Islam showed up whenever their first family member showed up. No, even for your Pakistani grandfather or your Palestinian grandfather or your Lebanese grandfather or your great grandfather, somebody, somebody sacrificed something for us to be here. And so what I say to all of you as we go up into 2020, as we're going to be hearing anti-Muslim rhetoric in this campaign, it's already starting. They are going to go after anybody that gets that Democratic nomination, and you have to be prepared for it. What I'm asking you to do is to never cower, is to never put your shoulders down, is to never act like you don't see what's happening around you. What I'm asking all of you to do 
is to be unapologetic about who you are and to think about what are you willing to sacrifice for generations of Muslims to come. Because there's another generation 100 years from now who's counting on you. They're not counting on your grandfather, your great-grandfather. They're counting on you to sacrifice something. And the least that we can do as Muslims in this country is be unapologetically proud of who we are. Every single day, in our jobs, in our schools, in the supermarket, on the streets, wherever you go. Because our children deserve that. And they deserve to see us proud and unapologetic about who we are. I ask Allah to bless us all to protect us, to protect our children, to protect, protect our religious institutions, to protect those and the leaders at mass and all the volunteers that have made this event happen. May Allah instill in us the moral courage to stand up for our deen, to stand up for our community. May Allah give us that feeling inside that makes us unapologetically Muslim every day when we wake up in the morning. And the last thing that I'll say is because I got to do, this is shameless what I'm about to do right now. But listen, we're not like others. We don't have publicists. We don't have people promoting us. I wrote a book. And it is, I'm signed by a major publishing company called Simon & Schuster. It's one of the largest publishing firms in the world. And I wrote a book called We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders. We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders. That's my book. And it's a book about my story as a daughter of Muslim and Palestinian immigrants one that will resonate with many of you in this room, and it's a journey of how I came and where I am right now in my life, and how I went through a lot of organizing campaigns and very tragic things that I haven't spoken about publicly, but I did write about in my book. And I hope that you all read it, because the, the other thing about being unapologetically Muslim and visible is that we gotta support one another. And one of the things that I want this public, publishing company to know is that when you, sign Muslim Americans, and you tell the diverse Muslim stories in our community that are inspirational, they're gonna hit the New York Times bestseller list. And that we are worth the investment as individuals and leaders and authors in our community. So what I hope that you do is that you pre-order my book. We are not here to be bystanders. And inshallah, I will come and visit you in a city near you. Salaam alaikum. Thank you. Um, let's give it up for her one more time. <laughs> the applause wasn't enough. Allahu Akbar. <clears throat> okay, so right now we'll be moving into our question and answer um, section. This will, be take, this will take about 10 minutes. Um, if you do have any questions, go on your phones right now to slido.com. That's S-L-I-D-O.com. And you could post your anonymous questions on there and I'll be reading them out. Um, so for our first question, um, what advice do you have for young people trying to get involved but limited by the fear of their parents? Oh, sorry. Sorry, can I? I'm sorry. Um, the code for Slido is YP, capital YP, and then 2019. Just YP twice. No, no, just YP. YP 2019. So YP2019. So the question is, what is my advice for young people whose parents tell them not to organize, but they really want to organize? Here's where the parents get mad at me. It's okay, because I'm a parent too, and a lot of people are mad at me in the Muslim community and outside the Muslim community, so I'm all right. This is where I tell the young people that this is where that ayah in the Quran comes, right? 
stand up against injustice, even if it's against your own parents. That's what the dean says. I didn't say that. Find a cause, sisters, a just cause, and organize around it. And I want parents to know that if our young people are not given the opportunity to fight for us and to fight for people who are oppressed around the world, and if we tell our young people, don't fight for the people of Kashmir, don't fight for the people of Palestine, don't fight for the people of Syria, if we tell our young people, don't fight for health care and don't fight for rights, then who's going to fight for us? Sisters and brothers, who's left? In every movement in America, from the civil rights movement, to the women's rights movement, to the movement to get the right to vote in America, every movement has been led by young people. A lot of people see Congressman John Lewis now, who's in his late 80s, and they say, oh, civil rights icon John Lewis. John Lewis was 19 years old when he was an organizer. Dr. Martin Luther King was 21 years old when he became a leader in the civil rights movement. We cannot wait till your kids are 40 for them to fight for our people because at that time, Allahu A'lam, what would have happened 20 years from now if we didn't do anything now? So I'm encouraging young people to, yes, study. Yes, get a degree. Yes, make your parents proud because they've done everything for you. But you also have a responsibility to give back to your community. You have a responsibility to defend your deen and you have a responsibility to defend Muslims around the world who are oppressed. And yes, even our sisters and brothers who are not Muslim who are also oppressed. So I'm encouraging you to find something to do. And when your parents tell you, you say, Sister Linda, I was at a lecture, call Sister Linda. She said that we should be organizing and we should be doing the work of justice, inshallah. Um, so you talked about being visibly Muslim when we're um, out advocating or organizing. Um, so how can we be visibly Muslim um, if we don't wear a hijab, if we don't have a beard, and if we're not particularly on a college campus where we could just join an organization um, that has the name Muslim in it? Being Muslim, I just want to be very clear so nobody leaves here with any misunderstandings. Just because you wear hijab doesn't make you more religious or pious than a sister who doesn't wear hijab. Right? That doesn't, that the hijab is a very important part of our deen and is particularly prescribed to us in our deen. But it's also not a measure of someone's iman. So I want to make that clear. And for those sisters who don't wear hijab, we welcome you to our hijab club. Anytime you're ready, we're, we're down. You're still our sisters regardless. And also for our brothers, those who don't wear, uh, you know, wear beards or, or grow beards or don't wear kufis or whatever, no judgment here. There's many ways to tell people that you're a Muslim. You just have to do it a little bit more than we do because we show up and we're already Muslims and people already know that. I would really love to see more young Muslims, particularly those in college campuses where there are not MSAs or there isn't a very large Muslim kind of culture, write an op-ed for your school paper. Talk about what it feels like being a Muslim American on your college campus. What are the issues that move you, right? Feel brave enough in your college campus to sit in a classroom where someone's talking about an issue around national security or talking about issues around Israel-Palestine or talking about what's happening in Syria or in Yemen or other foreign policy issues or even in a religion class and being able to raise your hand and say, as a Muslim, here's what my thoughts are on the subject, right? As a Palestinian Muslim American, as a Lebanese Muslim American, as an Egyptian Muslim American, as a Yemeni Muslim American, as a Somali Muslim American, as a... Su we all have the gift of being able to articulate ourselves in a, in a way that makes sure that we identify ourselves 
as people who are Muslims. And to say it with confidence, and remember when you're saying it, don't forget this part, with your back straight. I never want you to be in a space where you're like, well, as a Muslim American, you know, and you're kind of not feeling even sure about your words. You gotta be ready. If you're gonna get up and say you're a Muslim, that comes with a lot of responsibility. So Islam is not just about what you wear. It's about what's in your heart. And it's about the, the question whether you're proud enough as a Muslim to make sure people know that you're a Muslim. And sometimes that's gonna require you actually having to say out loud that you are a Muslim. And I hope that all of you have that type of moral courage to say in any space that you are in that you are a Muslim and a proud Muslim. And in my own words that I use all the time, and I know people think it's a cliche, I believe in this. There's actually a difference between just being a proud Muslim and being an unapologetic Muslim. Because in this country, they want us to apologize for who we are. They want us to hide who we are. They want to tell us that in order for us to belong to different groups or to be part of different college groups or, 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 or coalitions or this, that we, we got to be less than who we are. And I've been told that many times before, not just to be less Muslim, but to be less Palestinian. And my answer to that is I'm going to be a thousand times more Palestinian than I was when you told me that. Because we deserve that. And you deserve that. And remember that there are young kids who are watching you and seeing how you act. You may be a sophomore, and there may be a freshman in your class that's waiting for that one person to get up and say something. For them to be like, well, if my brother can say that or my sister can say that, I'm going to say that next time. So remember that the energy and the courage that you give or that you emulate, someone else takes and emulates it somewhere else. Thank you, Sister Linda. Um, that's all the time we have for questions. If we could give it up for her one more time. Thank you.